Fans of the Byword have been waiting an eternity, but the time has finally come. Chris and I are reviewing The Eternals. The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentle people, welcome to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, the only podcast that is zany to the max and has baloney in their slacks. Uh, I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and in this week's episode, we are going to take a look at the Eternals and kind of try to weed through all of the uh, very odd critical reception that the movie received to figure out if this is in fact a decent entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe after all. But first, as always, it is time for... Now, Chris, your news story is weaving quite a web. Well, the web over at Sony's Marvel Cinematic Universe appears to be growing. Dakota Johnson is reportedly in talks to lead an upcoming Madam Web project for Sony with S.J. Clarkson as the director. At first glance, many fans were completely bewildered by the casting rumors as the most recognizable iteration of the character Cassandra Webb, created by Denny O'Neill and John Romita Jr., is an elderly, paralyzed, and blind woman with the mutant ability of clairvoyance. Upon further inspection, most fans are speculating that Johnson will portray the Julia Carpenter Madam Web, who received her powers directly from Cassandra at the end of the Amazing Spider-Man arc Grim Hunt. Personally, I have no experience with Johnson's work. I'm a massive fan of her father, Don Johnson, but I'm openly intrigued, to say the least, that Sony is headed in this direction. So uh, what are your thoughts on all of this, Dave? Yeah, this is sort of an interesting situation. Uh, first, I would think that it would be a huge um, oversight if they didn't do the Julia Carpenter version of Madam Web. Uh, that, that that just goes without saying. Uh, very, very fascinating take on the character. Um, I've been spending a lot of time on Marvel Unlimited and kind of getting to know a lot of these characters a little more. And that version of Madam Web is, is very, very interesting. Um, and I think could probably carry a movie of her own. Whereas I'm not sure um, knock off Aunt May with with like precognitive powers is necessarily the best way to go in a standalone movie like this. So the thing though is that as soon as you start going into these directions where you're taking Spider-Man supporting characters and you're giving them their own movies, I don't think that necessarily always works very well. I, yeah, I'm looking at you, Venom, uh, with, with, with a healthy dose of side-eye. You know, once you remove those characters from the context of, of you know, how they interact with Spider-Man in a larger sort of Spider-Man story, oftentimes there's not a whole lot left there. You know, like I can see um, a, a Black Cat movie, for example, working, but one of the big things that makes the Black Cat so very fun is how she interacts with, with Spider-Man. And so there will always be, I think, a large fan base that feels that there's something missing there. And I think with a Madam Web story, you end up in a in a similar position in that I don't think, I can't recall ever reading a, even a singular Madam Web story. Um, 
in a, in comic book form. I, I can't recall one even existing because ultimately she always ends up being a supporting character in some way, shape, or form. So I'm skeptical, Chris, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't know. I think what's wild is no matter our criticism and our critiques of Venom and the Venom franchise and the films, the, the last... Uh, film Let There Be Carnage made five hundred million dollars at the box office, and that was during a pandemic. So it, it's it's crazy because you know I I like to sit back and and feel a lot of the same emotions about it as you, but I, I guess like they're like feeling kind of empowered by this. Um, for me, especially the Julia Carpenter iteration of the character, she, she has shown up the most, at least in my experience, in the Spider-Verse. So not only is Spider-Man there, um, but like a whole bunch of other Spider-centric characters are. So taking that character out of there and then, you know, giving them their own film, I don't know if there's enough substance for a storyline there. I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued, but uh, I, I'm kind of you know, to borrow your phrase, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, at the same time, I would like to see Cassandra Webb in some form or fashion, you know, um, with a character, you know, we talked last week a lot about um, proper representation for individuals with dwarfism. And then, you know, to take uh, a character who uh, not only is, is elderly, but also has, you know, multiple disabilities um, I would like to at least see some kind of representation of Cassandra Webb, uh, the passing of the torch, if you will. I think just like cutting out that character whole hog would be a mistake. See, I, I definitely agree with that. And there's also, you know, the added wrinkle, like Julia Carpenter was like Spider-Girl or, Spider or a, a, Spider or a yeah. Spider-Woman for a while, right? So there's like, you, if, if you jump immediately into the whole Madam Web thing with her, you're also cutting out a significant portion of her history and what makes her such a fascinating character. You know, how she kind of graduated into the role of Madam Web, so to speak. Um yeah, I just I can't see how this is going to work. I mean, all the ramblings from Madam Web about the great the great web and everything always in 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 most you know cases revolves in some way, shape, or form around Peter Parker. So removing him, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to make this work and make it compelling. And I also want to throw out there that I really don't care how much money Let There Be Carnage made, <laughs> um, because if we're going to talk about box office, let's talk about how much metric crap tons of money the Transformers franchise has made. <laughs> and there, and there's maybe there's maybe half of a good movie across the entire franchise at best. So I I, I prefer quality over over box office, to be honest with you. So. And while I don't want to cut and paste the success of Into the Spider-Verse, um, someone speculated on social media that we could be getting Morlun and in the and the Inheritors. And while the Spider-Verse comics themselves are kind of hit or miss for me, I've always found Morlun and his uh, 18, or Victorian era family fascinating as villains. So I, I would be excited to see them pop up on the screen. Yeah, I, th I think that's probably fair. Um, I, and I think expanding the Moreland character to this really weird family was a good move because I seem to recall when he first popped up, it was just like him. Yeah. And there was like no, lar lo no larger context for him. And he just came across as like this this really weird, um, you know, specifically designed to be like the guy who can like 
you know, punk Spider-Man basically like, haha, I'm so much stronger than you. You can't defeat me crap. And I'm always leery of brand new villains just popping up and immediately being like, I'm the best there is and I'm the strongest and I'm better than all the other villains you've ever faced, you know? So the expansion of that character uh, was a good move because, you know, in the larger context that the family dynamic of that whole setup is actually really interesting. I'll, I'll agree with that. I think for me that when Moreland, if, and if memory serves, Morlin came around when Ezekiel uh, first popped up, and and Ezekiel was far more the mystiques centered around that character was fascinating for me. And then they kind of traded that out for the Inheritors soon after. So uh, Ezekiel yes. was the strength for me, and then it went into the Inheritors. So I thought that was a nice trade off. I I can agree with that. All right, Dave, uh, your news story is something that I totally forgot about, and maybe that's why the death knell is coming. I I think so as well. So I, it's probably no secret among the nerds that enjoy video games that Google tried to do their their own little, I don't want to say gaming console, but let's call it a, a streaming platform for video games called Stadia, which is supposed to you know enable you to basically play through a browser. Um, and the whole thing has not been a particularly, you know, thriving success, you might say. Um, and now uh, a Business Insider report uh, published just a few days ago, is indicating that uh, Stadia is about to come to a not-so-happy ending. Uh, the technical term used in the report is demoted, that Stadia has been demoted uh, within Google uh, and is now reporting to uh, Phil Harrison, the vice president of subscription services, rather than directly to Google's hardware boss. Uh, basically, uh, the the whole thing seems to indicate that instead of being like a, a video game platform, it's going to become more of a delivery system of content for third parties that basically Google is going to farm out this technology. Um, there seems to have already been the first of these deals kind of pop up unexpectedly. There was a a game found on Peloton bikes that says it is powered by Google Stream. And apparently Google Stream is the name that the Stadia technology will be uh, going under for the foreseeable future, which makes me think more like, you know, using the bathroom in Google headquarters. I'm having a Google Stream. But, you know, (laughs) you can't always have great names for these kinds of technologies. So it's it seems extremely sad on the one hand that you know something that was designed to be a really neat little next gen video game delivery system is kind of now you know being demoted to like Peloton bikes, uh, but on the other hand, Stadia never really made like a major impact or any big waves. Um, I know there are people out there who really enjoy. Uh, the technology but for me I never really had much of an opportunity to play around with it and they made some they made some questionable choices particularly with like uh, subscription costs and 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 so on and so forth Um, now of course uh, Google Stadia quote-unquote has reported uh, in a Twitter uh, has responded to this report in a Twitter thread that they're saying basically they're working really hard on a great future for the streaming service and that they've added you know 100 games to the service in 2021 blah 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 yada 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 but there's not like an uh, an overt denial that things are changing behind the scenes so I'm curious Chris what your thoughts are about this well, first and foremost, I don't know that Peloton is something you want to immediately attach yourself. I think they're going through a tire fire themselves right now, PR-wise. Um, 
but yeah, that's not a necessarily an enviable task is to try to take on, you know, the big three figureheads of gaming. You know, Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo have kind of had their their name in the game for the past two decades plus. Um, you know, f- furthermore for Sony and, and uh, uh, Nintendo, it's really actually, if you didn't have the big money and the big, you know, influence behind Microsoft, I don't think Xbox would have made the shockwaves that it did. Um, so it's really like an uphill battle, Herculean task to really even try to, to upset the status quo, as it were. Um, so yeah, also like, I don't know like where any of the marketing is with any of this. Like for me, one of the kind of unsung things that barely blipped on my radar was prime gaming. Um, And that's just like a little kind of perks thing. If you're already a prime subscriber, you can kind of connect with that uh, and you get perks for your video games. But you know, something along the lines of that, at least it pops up in my feed. I never hear about Google Stadia. So I don't know what they're advertising um, you know, techniques or strategies were, but I forgot this thing existed. And let's not sh- uh, sell uh, Amazon short because they did in fact have a gaming studio and were actively trying to develop video games. And that whole situation went uh, rather badly in the toilet as well as they tried to launch a game and it was universally panned and nobody was playing it and they had to shut it down. And it's it seems very, very difficult for... Um, these massive companies that you know have like a metric crap ton of profits like Google or Amazon and then they decide oh I'm going to make some video games too it seems to be incredibly difficult for them to figure out the formula of what makes a gaming platform work I mean the last the last new player that was highly successful uh, was the original Xbox you know since then we've not really had uh, you know a major new player in on the scene and in a lot of ways that was just because, uh, in large part, because there was a vacuum after you know the disappearance of of Sega from the you know gaming platform part of things uh, after after the failure of the Dreamcast. God, pour one out. That was one of my favorite consoles ever. I love the Dreamcast. Yeah, let's be let's be honest. The failure of the Dreamcast was one hundred percent financial, and in no way, shape, or form was it a hardware or design failure. That console was a beast and way ahead of its time in many ways. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not quite sure what the magic formula is here. Um, it seems to me, uh, at the very least, that uh, using like these pre-existing technology and stuff like oh you can you can play you know Assassin's Creed in your in your Chrome browser is is apparently not really the way to go. Um, PC gamers, for the most part, are happy with their PCs and the platforms that they have. You know. And, in in steam and whatever that other one is you know epic i don't know the epic that's right ask our kids ask our kids i have no idea (laughs) yeah yeah that's 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 a whole nother story but um where it's really at apparently still is consoles if you're if you're gonna you know get the general audience the the general people out Mm -hmm. there to to buy in um then don't go knocking on the door of the PC master race, you know, make a, make a standalone box that can hook up to their TV. Yep. Uh, and, and maybe if, if you promote it quite right and have the right deals behind the scenes to get games, you know, on that platform, especially some exclusives, uh, then, then maybe, maybe you have a shot. Um, but, but Stadia, even from the moment it launched looked like kind of a lost cause to me. 
Um, it's a shame again that you know this kind of technology is now being relegated to you know, peloton bikes. But like you said, yeah, there was not really this didn't seem to be a huge advertising push for it either. It was like Google was almost half-hearted about it. Yeah, well, and it's crazy, you know. You know, thinking back to my AP Econ classes, I'm not I'm not the biggest economics person, but I can remember, you know, enough to that you really want to when you're coming up with a new endeavor, you want to exploit inefficiencies in the market and provide something new that really kind of tackles that thing. You think back to things that have really revolutionized technology in, in the past decade or two, you think of things like Redbox, and now with streaming, you know, Redbox is basically obsolete. Um, and and what was Stadia hoping to accomplish? Like, there's nothing really new that's established. No, no groundbreaking things are offered through Stadia. I mean, look now, you have, um, you know, the groundbreaking deals that Microsoft has made, and then, you know, Sony even answering, firing back with, uh, you know, the Bungie acquisition. Um, so, and then you're just like, well, you can play in your Chrome browser. That's what you have to offer. Uh, I think back to that song. You're playing with the big boys now, uh, and and this was not. This is this is a ripple uh, in the water compared to the groundbreaking earthquake type stuff that the big the big corporations are doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, well, there you have it, folks. That's it for nerd news. When we come back after our first break, it's time for big talk. When we sit down and review. The Eternals. What do we think of it? Let's find out. All right, folks, welcome back. It is time to dissect the recent MCU entry, quite a controversial one at that too, very divisive, The Eternals in this week's All right, so as we usually do when we dig into a movie like this, both Chris and myself have selected three things uh, that we really like about uh, the movie and three things that we disliked. Um, So we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, We are, of course, fully aware that we're a little bit behind the curve, that the movie has been out for a little while, but that also means that we've had a chance to let this whole thing simmer Uh, And maybe we have some new insights to share today. So, Chris, let's go ahead and start with something you like. Yeah, so I got the the opportunity to see this opening weekend, uh, the theater. We don't don't live in exactly a a very bustrous urban area. So I was able to see uh, this with a a relatively empty theater. Um, And then, you know, I watched it again last night uh, in preparation for the episode. So seeing this again with kind of new eyes and it really stood out to me. My far and away favorite thing of this film was uh, the relationship and the interactions between um, Angelina Jolie's Thena and Don Lee's Gilgamesh. I thought that their relationship um, was, it, it superseded so many things. A lot of people speculate that it was a romantic relationship. Um, and I'm not, I'm not here to say, you know, definitively, yes, it was, or it was not, but just that, that beautiful relationship that they had over centuries that I thought it was a beautiful metaphor um, for mental health 
and true struggles. Um, and I thought it was masterfully portrayed by Angelina Jolie, just the, the true struggle, um, you know, with, with what is it? Mad Dweary, I believe it was called. And, and yes. just the weight of all those centuries weighing on her mental health and just the absolute care that Gilgamesh, you know, one of the strongest, this, you know, if you want to even classify him as an archetypal, uh, archetypal gentle giant, but that he set aside all of whatever he wanted to do, possibly personally, that he dedicated centuries, literally centuries to take care of her and make sure that he was okay. And in, and I think a much better version of what we got between the Hulk and Black Widow is the only person that could truly reach her. I thought that was a really beautiful back and forth between them. And even after full spoilers, by the way, if you haven't watched the movie, why are you listening to this part of the show? Um, after his death, like the sacrifices that he made and the relationship that that they had, it had like this lasting effect on her to where even after he was gone, she was able to conquer the mad dweary and, and pass along the wisdom and the beautiful, um, beautiful message that when you love something, you protect it. And I just love their relationship so much. And it was far and away my favorite thing from the film. Yeah. You know, I, I totally uh, and wholeheartedly will agree with that, that that was one of the things that especially early on in the movie really worked for me. Um, Gilgamesh generally as a character really clicked for me um, at a point in the movie when I was still struggling connecting with some of the other characters. Um, it did take a little while to get a full sense for many of the characters. And so you know, Gilgamesh just kind of clicked, you know, from the word go, you know, especially in the sequence where, you know, the, they're trying to get the family back together and they come and, and you know, find him and Dina together. Um, like that whole sequence, just the way he behaves, how he talks, you know, how he carries himself, the character just kind of clicked right away. And I was extremely disappointed that he he died fairly early yes. on in the movie. I, there was there was a lot there, I think, still to mine. Um I also really like the whole concept of of like this this madness that takes hold because you have so many memories and you kind of buckle under the weight of that. There's so many um stories that deal with like, you know, immortality and stuff and that is something, you know, that is never really touched on, you know. Um so I I really like the parallels between that and you know, like mental health problems and how they you know try to use that to kind of examine that a little bit. I think they could have done a little more with that, I think. Um, but uh, as it stood, I think it worked quite well in the context of this movie. I just wish we would have gotten more Gilgamesh out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's something I'll visit later on as well. Um, Dave, your first point, um, I'm right in lockstep with you, Ghost Surprise, as two history nerds, particularly ancient history for me. Yeah, yeah, me too. And see, that's the thing when you absolutely adore history to see, you know, a, a hefty special effects budget dedicated to bringing like, you know, Babylon to life for the Gupta Empire or, or, or lo and behold, you know, like the, <clears throat> the, the whole issue with, you know, the, the Spaniards arriving in Tenochtitlan and all that, like th this visually, you know, was a very, very, you know, well put together movie from a special effects standpoint. Uh, but I absolutely adored how they brought some of these historical eras and places to life. Um, that that really spoke to my history loving heart. 
And it also gave you a really epic scope because we keep moving, you know, through flashbacks to all these different eras of human history. And I really, really enjoyed that. Um, I'm not usually a huge fan of, of flashbacks as a storytelling device because I feel like it <clears throat> it kind of kills the momentum uh, of the present day storyline. I've seen a lot of, um, I guess, more insecure writers use flashbacks to ill effect because they're kind of feeling, you know, like anxious about how they're going to move the story forward. So they just say, okay, we're just going to go backwards. Um, and, and then you end up with a really meandering mess of a, of a story. And I don't think that necessarily happened here. Um, I, I think that the flashback sequences worked really kind of well to contextualize the characters and what it means to be, you know, 7,000 years old or something. Um, so I I really enjoyed that aspect of the of the movie. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think it's a it's a difficult needle to thread when it comes to nonlinear storytelling like that. I think the first season, uh, first season of The Witcher did that pretty well. It it was a little bit jarring at first because it had been a while, but upon revisiting and rewatching that first season, I thought it really added a lot to it. Um, my nerd commendation for for later on in the show, I'll talk about that again. But I think it's a very difficult needle to thread, and this is probably one of the best examples I've seen of it. Yeah, especially I think in in like modern movies, and there there are you know older movies that do some really interesting non-linear storytelling. Memento, for example, is very noted for that. Um, but I, I really liked how it worked in this. Also, I, I kind of really liked how very careful they were to make sure that the flashback sequences always sort of tied in with where the story was in the present day mm-hmm. and weren't like you know, haphazardly, haphazardously placed all over the place. So, but yeah, to me, the, the big thing was just that it felt truly epic in those historical things. I almost wish we would have gotten more of, you know, them like in, in ancient Babylon and stuff. Like, I think, I think there's such a rich uh, storytelling thread there that I almost wish we could have picked up on and seen more of. All right, Chris, so your second like of the movie. I love how complex these characters were. I thought that, um, you know, after after centuries together, uh, their interactions were spot on, um, particularly with with a few of them. I thought, and, and, and I like that a lot of these characters, it wasn't black or white. There was a lot of gray area. I'm thinking particularly of, of Druig and, you know, how do you even begin to use your power when your power is literally mind control? Like, how do you use that in a beneficial manner? How do you use that in in a good heroic way? That's not it. That's not exactly an easy line to walk, you know. And so, you know, particularly, I'm thinking of of the scene in Tenochtitlan where. He's literally, you know, the tears are in his eyes because he's like, this is genocide. This isn't right. But then, like, is it right to take over the minds of these people? Is it right to go build your own commune, utopian commune in the Amazon and, you know, to use your powers in that regard? And But at the same time, he's not like an outright evil character as well. Um, I thought that the the interactions between himself and Makari were absolutely adorable. This flirtatious kind of whimsical thing that they had going back and forth was just magnificent. I thought that um, 
Sprite's interactions with a lot of the characters and that, um, you know, just the complexity and the, the difficulty of being the only eternal that is perpetually a child. Even if you're 7,000 years old, you still have the physical appearance of a 12 year old. Uh, that was complicated. And then, you know, her interactions with the other people being in love with Icarus, but not being able to do anything about it because you're quote unquote Tinkerbell. Um, I thought Kingo is probably one of my favorite characters, just fascinating. And while I disagree with his decision and it's actually one of my dislikes coming up in the film, but just having that complexity and then not just being a yes man, uh, one way or the other was fascinating. Um, you know, Fastos and, and the complicated history and relationship that he has with humankind. And like, am I doing the right thing here by promoting their technology? Is this my fault? So I thought that the characters, um, with the exception of Icarus, screw Icarus, um, were pretty complex and fascinating. And, and I thought that one of the strengths of this film overall was, was its character work. See, I, I will agree with that, with some notable exceptions, and now we can talk about Icarus later and the dislikes. I think there were some missteps with that character, but I also really felt bad for uh, Salma Hayek in her in her role uh, of Ajak, because that particular character yes. felt extremely shortchanged, yeah, absolutely, uh, and really and really was more of an ex- sort of you know an inciting incident than anything else, and even in the flashback sequences seemed like there was like no real real arc for that character even with you know the that last flashback scene we get of of her and her she's like oh i changed my mind you know like we did not get to see that development and as such i think that character um got really really short changed i also think there was something really uncomfortable in the interactions between um between Kingo and Icarus, there is that moment towards the end where like they're kind of questioning Cersei's leadership a little bit. And Kingo says to Icarus, I'm going to follow you like I always did. And like, at what point were you following him period? Because Ajax was, was the leader of the Eternals this whole time. So it's like this really icky moment of like, you know, the two dude bros saying, yeah, chicks, right. We can't really trust them or follow them. And I think the whole 7,000 years you've been following, you know, following the leadership of a woman so that 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 wasn't complex that was just icky but yeah for the most part i'll agree there are there are interesting questions being raised in most of these characters um and and i really enjoy that complexity as well all right dave your second like is probably far and away the undisputable thing about this movie so so i think that just from a sheer directing uh standpoint this is probably one of the most gorgeous uh mcu movies period there are shots in this movie that i would not mind like buying as like wall decoration for my house like the composition of the various shots i'm thinking um when they're driving up to ajax's house for example uh you have that house sort of in the distance and a really nice like work with like shadows south dakota represent Seeing South Dakota, my home state, on screen was wild. (laughs) Yeah, it was very, very nice. There's also a really cool shot, um, and there's so many more. I'm just kind of throwing out some that were favorites. I really like when when Cersei is like sits down and is like meditating to try to contact her god. I I forget the name offhand. 
ashram or whatever. Arashem. Um, Arashem, that's right. So that shot where she first sits down, like starts meditating, that is absolutely gorgeous. And the movie is just filled with these absolutely beautifully framed shots, even uh, when we divorce like the the scenes of special effects, like you know the reveal of of Babylon, for example, and just look at like good old fashioned movie making, you know, no no CG stuff. Like Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao was the one who directed this movie, correct? Correct. Academy Award winner Chloe Zhao, yeah, yeah. So Chloe Zhao did a fantastic job with this movie. Like it's the visual language of the movie is so different from what we've seen in the MCU before. And there is such a careful eye to so many of these different shots. And I think there's a function of, of this movie being almost more of a family drama than like a traditional superhero tale that gives her the room to have a whole bunch of sequences that aren't relying on like 50 million special effects where she can just like, mess around with the camera and come up with these really interesting compositions and these really interesting shots. And I really, really enjoyed that tremendously about this movie. Uh, I kept saying to my wife as we were watching the movie, it's a slow moving movie right now, but I'll tell you one thing, it is a feast for the eyes. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And I think one of the overwhelming criticisms of the film um, is that it's slow moving and that there's not a lot of action, but I'm perfectly okay with that because of you you can exchange kicky kicky punchy punchy smashy smashy for these gorgeous visuals and for me particularly the scene where you have the frozen celestial tiamut at the end of the film just that establishing shot right there where you see the grand scale of that is absolutely just stunning and like it almost brings tears to the eyes how gorgeous this movie is so i will gladly turn in you know constant action and suspense for something slow moving I, I i think i advertised this to you when i first saw it as like a biblical epic like it's a it's a very different story that they were trying to tell with this and it's understandable how some people were kind of thrown off being you know accustomed to the typical mcu fanfare um you know of how of films in the mcu work but for me i it was it was a welcome change and i'm, I'm interested to see how this will go uh, and change things going forward in the MCU because it was an absolute delight to just watch it, um, particularly on you know the big screen. Yeah, I can imagine. You see, th- this is one of those things, and I know I know this guy is not without his own problematic history, blah blah blah, yada yada. But there is a story um, of Kevin Smith's that I always really appreciated from one of his like from one of his like long talks that he likes to give. But he was talking about. Um, working on a Superman movie that ultimately didn't get made with producer John Peters. The Nicolas Cage one? uh, It ended up being the Nicolas Cage one. I think they ended up hiring Tim Burton and they scrapped uh, Kevin Smith's script. And that was going to be the Nicolas Cage one, the one directed by Tim Burton, but that one didn't happen either. But Smith kind of tells the story of how he um, like writes this, this treatment basically, and he brings it to the producer and he's like, you know, basically running him through the story. And at one point, like Superman villain Brainiac is like at the Fortress of Solitude or something. It's like going to steal something out of the Fortress or some such thing. And the producer is like, okay, right here, uh, we need an action beat. And Kevin Smith is like, well, what kind of action beat do you want here? Because there's like, there's no action. Like he's just going into the Fortress and trying to steal something. 
And the producer's like, well, I don't know, can Superman have like some security guard robots that Brainiac can fight? I was like, it's Superman. Why does he need security guards? <laughs> well, I don't know. Can you maybe can you maybe fight some polar bears or something? Like that kind of that kind of methodology of moving making, that formulaic, and now it's time for an action beat. I'm I'm not married to that. I understand why. Um, they have certain structures like that to make sure they keep the audience engaged for two hours. Uh, you know, I have a certain amount of understanding for that, but uh, I'm not married to that. And so I, I like a slower moving movie just as much as an action packed one. And I think the Eternals was very clear from the get go that this was not going to be an action fest. You kind of, you kind of got the sense from that, from the word go. Um, it's a different kind of movie and that doesn't necessarily make it bad. It just makes it different. Yeah, I think when they were tackling, you know, kind of the thematics of should we, should we not, and like the overarching morals of this film, I think it would have been completely disingenuous to have a bunch of action scenes like that. I think it would have completely missed the mark. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. All right, Chris, what you got next for your third like? Uh, it's Mercari, and the only thing that upsets me about the character is that she is not in the movie near enough i thought that this was like a better take on the flash that i've seen in live action yet like the the fast motion scenes the the fighting scenes when she was beating the crap out of icarus like that was just an awesome sequence to see like i there's so much like like I said, the the interplay between her and Druig, the the flirtatious elements of their relationship, the fact that she's just like this this kind of rogue thief, uh just like compiling artifacts, just they come back to the the domo and like all of these artifacts we've got excalibur and they're just like oh yeah it's excalibur and you know like oh yeah king arthur always had a crush on you and like just like compiling all these artifacts was just so much fun um and then of course you know we've talked about this before on a previous news story but just like the impact of having someone who's deaf or hard of hearing at, you know at the center of you know a big blockbuster film like this is just so important for representation and so important for learning and um, just growing as um, you know as a as an as an audience and you know, as a community so I absolutely love Mercari I think she's a fascinating character I'm hoping that in this the supposed the expected sequel that we get a lot more because there was not near enough I see that I agree with. Uh, I think what makes that performance work so very well is that uh, that Lauren Ridloff has just a very, very easy charm to her. Yes. Like, you know, there, there's something incredibly charming about her performance, you know, the way, the, not just in her interactions with Druid, but just all her interactions with the other characters. She there's there's a there's a very easy smile on her on her face and just she's I guess the best way to describe her is just effortlessly charming yes. and that so comes through in that performance and yes uh, you end up feeling like you've missed out on something when they go back to their spaceship and she's just sitting there with all these books and all these artifacts and like where I did feel this like happen yeah out. there's like a we whole movie there a, absolutely yeah so so there's an a very very cool character with a very very uh cool performance that i think we just did not um did not get enough of i also have to say that um the scene where where druid gets attacked by by icarus oh man and um and 
you know, Macari tries to scream but can't can't quite scream. You know that that mm-hmm. the, the 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 raw emotion of that scene is 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 a real that 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 moment was a real movie stealer right there. And she and she so, went ham and beat the shit out of him. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's just a really really cool character, really really cool performance. Also, shouts to the scene where those guys are trying to take advantage of her, and she's like, "I could hear you talking. I just sense the vibrations. It's just different, and you're not pulling a fast one on me." Yeah, yeah, I love that. All right, Dave, uh, your third and final like of the film. I, you know, we kind of talked about how the complexity of the characters and all that. This is a big movie character-wise. There's a crap ton of characters here. And I think we, we've kind of mentioned how, you know, Makari's been sidelined for a good chunk of the movie and Gilgamesh dies fairly early on. And I think that is a function of trying to prune the cast a little bit because it is so sprawling but i think overall the sprawling cast was handled decently well i think on the front end i kind of and i mentioned this i kind of struggled to get a grasp of some of these characters and their motivations and who they are which is why i kind of you know kind of had this tendency of really liking gilgamesh because he 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 was instantly likable recognizable you could connect with him very quickly whereas some of the other characters took took some time for me to warm up to or to kind of understand who they were but i think by the end of the movie i got a fairly clear picture of all the characters i think the one problem maybe besides you know icarus which we'll address in the dislikes is that you know Ajax situation, and I think Cersei, although being ostensibly the main character of the movie, was a little difficult to to grasp as well. I had I had some struggles kind of getting in the mind of Cersei, at least until the end of the movie. But I'm I'm very very happy overall with how this movie has handled this really sprawling uh, cast of characters. We got to remember that when you're looking at something like. Um, Avengers Endgame, which just had a metric crap ton of characters in it. What you're looking at is all characters that were previously established in other movies, whether that's, you know, two or three movies of their own or being a side character in a couple of movies or previous Avengers movies. There, there were not, there was not much in the way of new characters in something like Endgame. But this is a sprawling cast of characters and we had to get to know each character in this movie. And for that, I think the movie was quite successful. Yeah, I think so too. And and I, it's interesting that you say that having you having viewed the film once on this second rewatch, I bonded with more um, with Cersei more because that was my exact reaction. I was like, main character of the film, she was kind of boring. Um, but the second time, I don't know, maybe like knowing the end game to. Comp- pun fully intended of, of, of all of this like i i kind of felt I, I felt for her more um and and i sided with her more than i did the first time still you know not even close to being like one of my favorite characters one of the most compelling but i there was a little bit of ground that was made up and i can see why some people are are um you know seeing her as a favorite um markedly different i'm told i can't speak to this um, firsthand, but markedly different from Cersei in the comics. So I'm interested to read Kieran Gillen's current run because I've I've heard that I've heard nothing but effusive praise for that series. Um, but I, I definitely agree, and I think 
um it was a di- i've said this before on this episode but it is a difficult needle to thread and you know introducing all these characters at the same time i think it's inevitable that some are going to be hits and some are going to be misses and i'm i'm glad that they are getting a sequel so we can kind of uh you know get some more love for the people that we that we wanted some more of um well, you, you know who the unsung hero character of this movie is right uh it's karun yeah of course it's he's, Karun. He's a, king. he's a king. He's a king. Somebody, one of my friends, one of my friends last night, I was watching it again and I just said a king and I posted a picture of him and he said, yeah, uh, one of my favorites of uh, the Marvel Universe, definitely worthy to wield Mjolnir. I absolutely love Karun. Love him. Uh, well, well, just a great character. And I came across initially as sort of like comedic relief, but ended up being like... The heart. You know, it's funny because... I thought that what what Karun ended up being was what Kit Harrington was going to be there for yes, when the movie started, yes. like the like the human character through point whose of view, eyes we yeah. kind of the kid, yeah the kitty whose... pride of it all yeah exactly. But we ne- we Kit Harrington just kind of disappeared, and I was like, Where, "Where's Kit Harrington? This is Kit Harrington. Where's Kit Harrington at? You know, where's this character? You know nothing, and, Jon Snow." Yeah, exactly. And uh, well, apparently you're not in this movie, Jon Snow, uh, but. <laughs> But but then we ended up with Karun, who was like introduced as this like uh, com- you know comedic character, this comic relief, and then ended up being like this really cool little point of view character. Uh, yeah, I was uh, that. That's probably my favorite character in the movie. Yeah, and see, like I love I love the flawed character that Kingo is. Like, he literally, we got a superhero, all these cool powers. He literally had finger guns finger guns yep. <laughs> and so like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is like where he finally has his op moment and takes out a deviant by himself and it like the guts are splaying all over his face and he's like Karun, did you get it got it sir <laughs> I, <was> like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it yeah absolutely all right well chris the moment has come we're gonna have to talk about some dislikes what you got all right get your bleep Get your bleep button ready, Dave. Uh, I'm here. Icarus is a sack of shit. He's the worst. I can't stand him. And this hurts my heart because I love Richard Madden. I I still ride. I'm still not over the Red Wedding. I Rob Stark is still my king in the north. And so seeing one of my favorite actors be in this role was, was very hard for me to process. I thought he did it very well. I thought that um, he was, he came off as, as very aloof and cardboard, but like, I think that's what they wanted for that role to be the, the quote unquote company man for Arishem. And like, I do what I have to do. So like it left a lot to be desired, but my biggest critique was the lack of subtlety with him flying directly into the sun. Like, come on. Like, c- c- a come on, on a little on the nose. So yeah, my four-year-old by that time in the movie had snuggled up to me. He's like, daddy, what is he doing? Why is he going to the sun? He's gonna die. I was like, I know, honey, what are you going to do? So yeah, Icarus <laughs> fly- flying directly into the sun was just like, come, come on. Yeah, I got, I got several things to say about, about Icarus, but I think that's probably best safe for my, my first dislike. Um, I will say that I was disappointed in that aspect of the ending of the movie because it seemed like the cheap way out yeah rather than the family having to deal with one of their own turning against them they just go ahead he just goes ahead and like takes himself off the board and i think the way the character had been portrayed up to that point i don't think that that would have been his move 
uh, when he first flew into space, I thought he was like going to go find Erishim or something like, you know, that, and then we're going to see him in the sequel come back, like changed in some way. Um, not that he was going to like commit suicide via, you know, son. So yeah, I, I, I think it was kind of a, a cop out in the script. Especially due to the fact that they literally referenced it, that it was one of Sprite's tall tales um, beforehand in the film. And then it was like, well, we better we better lean right into that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was too on the nose, but it was also um, from a storytelling perspective, sort of cheap. Yeah. All right. Let's lean into that because I'm very interested to talk about your first point. Yeah, so uh, I have a pitch, actually, for a great episode of Marvel's What If Animated Series. Are you ready? I'm in. So, so here's my pitch. What if Cersei and Icarus had actual chemistry? <laughs> I think that would make a very different movie. Because this is the the central you know, relationship of the movie in a lot of ways. This is supposed to be the grand epic 7,000 year love story. And I felt absolutely nothing when it came to the central love story. Nothing. Like zip, zero, zilch, nada. I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it for a second that these people were in love with each other for 7,000 years. I don't even think they were in love with each other for 7,000 minutes. <laughs> it was. It was just a very, very cold relationship and i know they were going for the whole like stoic warrior thing with icarus but that is just one of the functions of 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 a love story is that there has to be some kind of warmth even like the scene where they got together was really weird like he walks up to her after creepily watching her all day and it's like if you want me i'm yours and then they like go at it and, and and then like he's like i love you and then they cut and like at no point did you get any sense for what the the mutual attraction was, what what were the things that they had in common. Like like that scene is even weird because Cersei never in in, in words at any point indicates that what the you know this is an act of love or something. Like she has absolutely no response to his advances other than let's get down to business. <laughs> um so I, I never buy this 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 love story, which is fascinating too, because uh, I think uh, Cersei's uh, scenes with with uh, D- uh, what is this Dane, Dane Whitman, uh, the, yeah. Kit, the Kit Harrington character, had so much more warmth yep. in them. Like yep. there was some actual chemistry there. And then he got sidelined, and I was like, he should have not been sidelined. Like having him there would have probably been a, a, a great thing for the Cersei character because the relationship between her and and Icarus felt completely flat. So, yeah, I mean, if you are going to, you know, sell this movie on the back of this epic love story that is so awesome and epic that it, it warrants the first sex scene in an MCU movie, then you better bring some heat between the two people you cast in those roles. And and there was no heat. I felt every time those two were together like I was in a deep freezer. Yeah. First, first and foremost, the fact that people are lauding this as the first sex scene uh in an mcu movie apparently never watched literally the first mcu film where tony stark gets it on with a reporter within the first 20 minutes of the movie um (laughs) secondly (laughs) it was very fitting that their sex scene took place in the cold 
dry sand because that's all of the emotion that there was between the two of them cold and dark and non-existent um yeah so this was literally just like you're hot you're hot you should make out you should have sex like that's literally what this was it's also fascinating and funny too and ironic because this is the overarching relationship that we're supposed to care about as the audience but the other two relationships whether you view them as romantic or not between Mercari and Druig and Thena and Gilgamesh are far more compelling with not one one hundredth of the screen time so it's really just like inexplicable cannot yeah, and can I just point out also, like the 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 moment when those two start kissing each other, I looked at my wife and I said, "Did these two just turn into robots?" Because that is the most robotic making out session I've ever seen. And then they are revealed to be, to be basically to be robots. Honest, yeah. To be fair, they are. Yes, actually, they are. <laughs> so I, I I like called the big twist of the movie when when those two characters started kissing. Like it was just it was right there in front of us the whole time. Yep. Yeah, it's like watching one of those detective shows and you solve it halfway through the episode. Yeah, pretty much. All all off the back of those two characters having zero heat. Yeah. Um yeah, I totally agree with that. And and like you said, you know, she had much more chemistry. So it's not a Cersei issue. It's uh Icarus is a stalker issue. Like there's no even like any kind of consensual part to their relationship. She just receives his affection. There's no back and forth. It's just like, I'm yours if you'll have me. And she's like, LOL, I guess. I will say that their wedding in the Gupta Empire was absolutely beautifully done. Like that part was gorgeous. Like that was the best part of their relationship. The wedding was beautifully shot and beautifully done. But other than that, like nothing for me. Yep, totally agreed. All right, Chris, what's your second dislike here? Oh, I kind of hinted at it, but sidelining Kingo during the climactic battle of the film is just, it, it felt cheap. It felt cheapened. Um, he, and it kind of felt disingenuous because he said, you don't go against the family. But then, like, he just ducked out of the whole thing. He, he, how are you going to say you don't go against the family and then not hold Icarus accountable for going against the family? He, whether you feel... Uh, in agreement with the emergence and that you should be serving Arisham, you should be there, not just like quit like that. It just felt so disingenuous. And it it took one of my favorite characters and just cheapened all of that experience for me. So sidelining Kingo from the big thing, just for him to come back and make a couple of more jokes. As much as I love Kumail Nanjiani and his performance, I was I was very upset by that. Yeah, I kept waiting for him to like ride to the rescue and like right, save yeah. one of them at the last second or something. But no, he just never came back. And yeah, I was very disappointed with that too. And I don't think necessarily that that was wholly in character either from the way he was established. Like, you know, something's going down. You know, he was, he's kind of a glory hound. He's going to want to be in the thick of something going right, down, right? Right, right. So yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't wholly buy that ducking out thing at all. I don't know what the, what the reasoning behind that whole sequence was behind the scenes but it didn't work for me either because like even no matter which way he feels he says in one hand he says that he is with icarus to the end of the line or whatever to borrow another mcu phrase um and then he dips out on that and then he also even if he feels like he's going to side with the other eternals because he feels like what icarus is doing is wrong he doesn't do that either and so he just quits and everybody loses yeah, exactly. All right, Dave, uh, your second dislike of The Eternals. 
the deviants ended up being such a non-factor in the story besides, you know, being basically a tool Icarus uses to, you know, get some people killed. Um, I thought that they were onto something really interesting with the idea of this deviant, like, evolving every time, you know, it takes on some of the powers of the Eternals, which is also interesting because, um, like, it's sort of revealed that those are biological beings, and then you have the robots that are the Eternals, but for some reason, like, the 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 deviants can like take the eternals powers on i'm not exactly sure how that's supposed to work but you know whatever uh the point is that i thought that there was something really interesting going on then that they were going to angle for something really interesting with the evolution of of the deviants and you know becoming more um i guess intelligent and and reasoned i thought that there was something really interesting going on there and then it ended up like completely being a non-factor to the overall larger narrative. Even like when that one that's been like doing all the evolving shows up at the end, it's just really sort of a one-on-one showdown between that deviant and Thena, and that's really the end of the line. Like there's no no wrangling about what does it mean that these creatures are evolving or uh, anything like that. It just became such a non-factor. Uh, in favor of family squabbles with Icarus. So I thought that the whole Deviant storyline was a huge dropped ball uh, in in this movie. I think that they could have done something much more interesting there than than basically nothing. Yeah, my issue with the Deviants starts with the name. Like, Arashem, are you truly surprised that these these creatures, these individuals that you created turned out to be going breaking bad or go, deviating from their mission when you literally named them deviants like yeah, how surprised good. can you be you named them deviants and then pretends to be shocked when they deviate from their mission so yeah that was that's all jokes aside i i was underwhelmed by that too i did love the feat of Thena, you know, as one of my personal favorite characters, her being able to conquer Madweary, and even though he's quoting Gilgamesh's lines at her because he's absorbed his powers, thinking that he's got the upper hand because of their relationship, her being able to withstand all that, I thought that was beautiful. But in the grand scheme of things, also just an amazing feat for her to slice his head like that. But but in the grand scheme of things, it was underwhelming. And just like, where do we go with Deviants from now? Are they all just gone again just for them to sh- pop up later on? So, yeah, that was overall it was underwhelming, even though I did like certain aspects of it. Graphically, I think visually, I thought they were really cool. Oh, yeah, sure. But again, it's just a, a huge missed opportunity, I think, for sure. Uh, in, in the storytelling. I'm not quite sure how they could have gotten that together at the end with the whole Icarus storyline. But then, you know, if you're going to do the whole like, oh, look, the the deviants are evolving. You got to do something with it. You can't just dangle that carrot and then flush it down the toilet. And we've seen this in previous superhero entries where they have one too many villains and, uh, you know, with the bait and switch of it all, like it it, it just sacrifices one and just just doesn't handle it well. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be a pattern. 
All right, Chris, your final dislike of the movie. All right, so we've kicked around, but I want to specifically highlight the fact that the more compelling characters did not get near enough screen time or screen time or focus. You killed off Ajax. I mean, I I adore Salma Hayek. I've been her biggest fan ever since Desperado. Like, so love her, and um, just she literally had nothing to do like no arc like you said and then she's killed off in a truly traumatizing scene that was really hard to watch especially a second time um and and just like the grotesque um uh, you know transformation her body goes through um was really hard to watch and then she has this beautiful scene on the ranch where she like details in which she changes her mind um, and she's, you know, come to love and appreciate humankind. And then she's immediately killed off. So it was really, really, truly disappointing. And then, of course, Makari didn't get near enough time. Like like I said, there's a whole movie in there where she's collecting all these artifacts throughout human history um, in, in favor of, you know, Cersei, who comes across as a little bland. I liked her more the second time. And then Proud Boy Icarus. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, I need, I hope in the sequel that we get more focus on the characters that I missed out on. But uh, uh, I don't know how that's going to happen when Ajax and Gilgamesh, two of my faves, were killed off. Well, I mean, they were around for 7,000 years. I think at the very least we can get some more flashbacks. Give me a, give me a prequel. <laughs> a prequel. Oh, no. No. The pre-Ternals. The pre-Ternals. <laughs> And then the, the sequel is the post-ternals. Yeah. All right. All right, Dave, what is your final dislike of the film? I think my wife kind of immediately had a problem with the movie right off the get-go. When you have a really, really super long title card right at the beginning of the movie, that usually doesn't bode well. Um, because it is it is basically dumping a whole lot of information on you. Uh, from the get-go and then looking for you to buy in and you've not even met one of the first characters um now there are notable exceptions to this i'm looking at for example star wars where the opening crawl is really uh sort of a tribute to the old like science fiction serials of like you know the 30s and 40s so that that is a stylistic choice not so much an exposition dump but in this movie we got like a couple of exposition dumps. You have that really lengthy title card at the beginning that's throwing all these different, you know, stuff at you, all these terminology and stuff. And it's just, you need to take all this for granted before the movie even starts. Um, but then we have, have the lengthy exposition dump in the middle where um, uh, Cersei sort of gets like the, the truth about the Eternals from Erisham. And that sequence lasts a really long time. And, you know, I always think the old the old saying of you know show don't tell in in storytelling like that would there not have been a better way to explain some of the stuff especially the opening title card like i had I, my wife and i were reading it together and my wife just kind of like her eyes glazed over after the third paragraph and i'm like you know this is a lot to put on general non-nerdy audiences to accept out of the get-go within the first 30 seconds of a movie um and then the big exposition dump in the middle there's just, should have been a much much better way a more a more conflict-based way like it did, rather than Erisham just like spilling the beans on everything that Cersei didn't know it would have been much more interesting if this was a scene between between Icarus and Cersei that is like laced with conflict 
where he's slowly confessing the truth to her or something. It would have built on their like, relationship as well. Yes, yes. So so what we what we got was just like two two big exposition dumps, one in the beginning, one halfway through the movie. And that kind of stuff is what makes a movie feel overly long or dragging down when you're removing conflict from the equation and making it just an information delivery system. And I think um I think if they would have done a little bit of a better job with that kind of stuff, um, I think a lot of the people who critiqued the movie for feeling like it was three hours long may have had uh, less to say there. Because what what we don't necessarily need is action sequences, but what we do need is conflict. And those things were completely without conflict. And, and they felt long and kind of boring. Yeah, I, I, um, you know, as an avid novel reader, I don't typically um, have a problem with that, but I think it could have been done a little bit better. I'm thinking specifically of scenes in previous MCU films where, you know, they explain like the history of the Infinity Stones or like in Wonder Woman where they explain the history of Themyscira and stuff like that, like kind of like those over narration things. And, you know, you know, film is, is typically a visual medium. Like if, if you want to go read a novel, go read a novel. If, if, if you want to read, you don't necessarily go to the cinema or, or, you know, your home theater system for that. So I think like an overarching narrative thing where they're letting scenes play out. I think that would have been a little bit better. Yeah, I'll agree with that. It's just conflict is the name of the game in all sorts of storytelling. And, and if you have scenes that are completely free of any kind of conflict, even if it's just, you know, I want to cross the street and this red light won't change, you know, like you just need some kind of conflict. And, and those scenes were devoid of it and therefore boring. And I think that's why all the family scenes worked really well, mm-hmm. even though they weren't action scenes, they were laced with conflict and disagreement and, and, and character bumping against character. Um, but but those those exposition dumps were just really misplaced and and should have been handled much better. Yeah, I think overall, just the strengths of this film were their work with the characters, and then in, in other areas they they did lack. Well, there we are. Uh, final verdict on the Eternals, Chris. What are your thoughts? So this this movie came back to mind because of our recent episode where we were talking about rotten films that we ride for. And I, I would have put this in there, but you hadn't seen it yet. So I didn't want to put the cart before the horse. I, I truly think that of all the MCU entries, for this movie to be rotten is is just laughable. I think that there are certainly aspects, like we said, like we've we've detailed here, that can be tweaked. Um, but I I do not think that this is a rotten film. Um, I I would probably give this film probably a B, maybe a B minus. But I overall really enjoy this film, and the more that I revisit it, I like it even more, um, particularly for its character work. So I'm going B B minus. Is this movie rotten, Dave? I don't think so, man. I really don't. I, I Is it like the greatest experience cinematically that I've ever had? Probably not. Um, and there are very clear weaknesses, um, especially if you're looking at like the central love story that is supposed to be, you know, the thing that this whole epic hinges on. And, you know, it's like the least epic love story ever. But there are so many cool things about this movie. There are characters that, that resonate. Uh, there are themes that are deep. 
and and inspired thought. Um, the, the movie has definitely stayed with me since I've watched it. Um, and it is very, very beautifully directed. So although it has its shortcomings, I, I too don't think that this is like the worst the MCU has to offer by a long shot. Um, and, and I'm actually hoping uh, twofold things here. Uh, first... I'm hoping that we will get a sequel of some kind to expand on these characters because I think, um, especially based on the ending we got, which was very much a non-ending, that there is more coming. Um, And two, I really hope that the lackluster reception of this movie does not discourage uh, producers over at Marvel from still experimenting with their format because the last thing we need is to revert back to the Marvel formula and make every movie mm-hmm. basically exactly the same. Um, the things that they've tried recently with Shang-Chi, with this movie, th- those are steps in the right direction, Absolutely. a diversification of approaches. Um, and and I think that the storytelling in the MCU is much richer for it. So I hope that they don't become discouraged. So I would say it, this is a solid B for me. I really I really enjoyed this one in the end. Even though there were things about it that I didn't like, there was a lot there to love. Okay, so for the record, it is officially right now 48% for the critics. But as I always love to see, the audience dunking on the critics at 78%. So um, just real quick, Dave, did you catch both of the end credit scenes? I did. Um, so... Uh, look, looking back on the end credit scenes, I was. Do, do we really? Want, do you really want my take on them? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, so the first end credit scenes where we get uh, where we get Star Fox. Um, cool to see Star Fox, but I'm always extremely uh, leery of stunt casting, and that was definitely <laughs> stunt <laughs> casting. You're not and, a big One so... Direction Harry Styles fan, Dave. Well, look, uh, it, I'm, clear, I'm clearly not. I'm clearly not Harry Styles' bread and butter target audience. <laughs> what? And I have, and, but, I, but I also have no problems with the guy. But what I do usually have a problem with is when when you have stunt casting, where a clear non-actor is being cast in what should be in any future movies a pretty major role. So I hope it works out. I hope the guy is a talented actor. Um, but. <sighs> In the short term, I really just don't like stunt casting. The second scene was much more interesting yes. to me uh, because it hinted at Black Knight, which I'm totally in for. And I really wished they would have found room in this movie for because all we got was Kit Harrington in the first 10 minutes and the last five. And and I think, I don't know if that was the best move, especially considering Cersei had mad you know, chemistry with mm-hmm. the guy. So I'm, I'm, I would be interested to see where that's going. Um, so first... Uh, so the mid credit scene was very mid, and the post credit scene was got me excited for the future. Did you recognize the voice at the end? I did not. It is Mahershala Ali as Blade. Oh my goodness! Now I have to go back and check that. Now out. you're even more excited. <laughs> so yeah. yes, yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, I love, That's I just... love Mahershala Ali. I think probably one of my all-time favorites in Hollywood. I love everything that he does. Um, And my greatest criticism of Luke Cage, a series that I enjoyed for the most part, was like he was clear far and away the most compelling character, and they killed him off way too soon. So I agree with that. Seeing him come back as Blade with Wesley Snipes' blessing, ah, it's just so exciting for me. 
yeah, I'm, 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 I'm totally there for that. You know, uh, I, I first encountered him as an actor way back when on a little science fiction show called The 4400. And uh, I totally fell in love with his performance. He was sort of a, a Captain America style character, right? He was not super, not super, super powered, but he was like a man out of time. You know, he had been in the military um, in the, like the 1950s, I think. And like the whole premise of the story was a whole bunch of people got like kidnapped from various points in history and then all dumped into the present and all of them had been altered in some way and like trying to figure out what's going on with these people and why they're there. And he was just this really, really cool character and just so perfectly acted. And I was just so pleased to see his, his trajectory as an actor, because like the first moment I laid eyes on him in the 4400 was like, this dude is talented, man. He's so good. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan for, for quite a while already. All right, folks, there you have it. That's our review of The Eternals. What did you think? Come onto social media and dunk on us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at ThatNerdChris and at ThatNerdDave. And after our final break, it's time for the ever-popular Nerd Commendation. Stick around. Welcome back, folks. It's time for the favorite segment of many of our listeners, the moment where Chris and I shine a spotlight on some really cool nerdy media. It's time for... All right, Chris, uh, I'm surprised, actually. Uh, I've not watched this myself yet, but I'm surprised that you're recommending this based on the big back and forth on social media of whether this show was actually worth watching. Okay, so Dave, first and foremost, how well have you been able to avoid spoilers for this show? Pretty well for the most part. Okay, I'll do my best here. Um, So I am nerd commending, at long last, The Book of Boba Fett. Um, much has been made about this series, as you detailed. Is it too boring? Is it too slow? Is it not what George Lucas would have wanted because they have colorful metallic motorcycles? <laughs> um, and then there is a lot of fan service in the fifth and sixth episodes, which I thought were spectacular. Um, I did see what they were doing, but it doesn't it doesn't come across as egregious to me. I have enjoyed the series. Um, It was a bit slow moving in the first couple episodes. I think I detailed that on uh, a previous episode. The Book of Boba Fett is a really, really interesting title um, simply because there's not a lot of Boba Fett in the last two episodes, at least. Um, But it's also fascinating to me as I revisit the first couple episodes that people aptly describe as very slow moving. There's a lot of nonlinear storytelling, a lot of flashbacks. But then I also think back and we are basing a series around a character who, while wildly popular in the original trilogy, had what, three lines, if memory serves. Um, So there's a lot of heavy lifting going on in this series. And as a whole, I, I overwhelmingly enjoy it. Um, there's a lot of deepening of um, storytelling with regards to the Tusken Raiders um, that was done at the second season of The Mandalorian that I am glad to see them expound, uh, expound on. It's a really great analogy for the native individuals 
uh, in America. So I really uh, imp- appreciate that and, and in a spotlight on indigenous uh, folks. So I, I'm enjoying that. I think Temera Morrison and his presence on screen is simply magnificent. I mean, what can what else can we say about Ming-Na Wen? Like, she's perfect. She's literally a nerd icon. Um, and then the developments, particularly of the last two episodes, have been fantastic. Far and away, my biggest um, positive out of this is that Bryce Dallas Howard, who directed the fifth episode, absolutely needs a Star Wars feature film. Um, she directed some of the most uh, fantastic episodes of The Mandalorian. And then uh, episode five is actually probably my favorite of the series so far. Everything, I think that there is just one episode left, but I, I'm really, really enjoying what they're doing with this. I love the the return to the space Western vibes that we love so much about the original series and, and other iterations of the characters uh, and, and, and the series. I, I really, really enjoy what I'm seeing in the book of Boba Fett. And while it is slow moving, um at the beginning i think it's 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 well deserved and well earned because we're doing a lot of heavy lifting we're going back 40 years doing a lot of service for a character who's making up for a lot of lost time so i love the book of boba fett and i highly recommend it yeah so i have been uh dodging spoilers pretty heavily i did kind of get roped into a discussion about the colorful speeder bikes <laughs> um which i really don't give a wet fart about <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know whatever um it, it having color doesn't mean it's anti-star wars in my book but what do i know um I've only been a lifelong fan. Uh, I did hear some rumblings that uh, it kind of diverts into Mandalorian territory again after a few episodes, and we get a little bit more Luke Skywalker deepfake, uh, which I'm you know here for because I'm just a huge Luke Skywalker nerd. Um, but for the most part, I've avoided most like you know story spoilers for this show. I'm still hoping to sit down and give it a good watch. Um, hearing you say that it's actually really good overall. Um, and and kind of shutting up the naysayers makes me happy because I love good Star Wars content. So I'm looking forward to giving this one a shot. Yeah. So now that well, so you know your boy is in it. It was really funny because it's almost like we spoke it into existence when I uh, upset you last week, and then here comes Luke Skywalker on my screen. <laughs> and he's amazing. Let's admit it. He's awesome. <laughs> But yeah, um, I, I really love the series so far, and I'm excited to see this finale because it's all coming to a head. So they did divert uh, in the fifth and sixth from the Boba-centric plot, but it's all coming back to this for the finale, and I'm super excited for it. I'm here for it, man. All right, Dave, uh, you are bringing us a Brubaker book, and that's always a good thing. Oh, it loves me some Brubaker. I mean, I really, really, really do. Um, so I have been... Uh, hanging out on Marvel Unlimited a great deal, and I've been kind of doing this this uh, Brian Michael Bendis Avengers era read through, um, kind of slowly going through all his various series, and I just hit sort of the end of uh, his initial New Avengers, uh, Mighty Avengers One Two Punch, uh, that kind of was going through like the the Civil War era, I guess. Um, and then, you know, the whole line experienced this relaunch and you ended up with like four different series. And I think two of them were written by Bendis. So you have Avengers by Bendis, New Avengers by Bendis. And I thought the other two Avengers books, Secret Avengers and Avengers Academy, were also written by Bendis. So I've been bouncing from series to series because they kind of like weave in and out of each other's orbit. 
And when I finally got The Secret Avengers, imagine my surprise when I see that this was not a Bendis book, but an Ed Brubaker book. Uh, it was Ed Brubaker on scripting and Mike Deodato Jr. on art. And dude, out of the, the three, I've not touched uh, Avengers Academy. Out of the three I've read, this was by far my favorite. Uh, it's, it's really, really solid. So the logline is that uh, Steve Rogers is no longer Captain America. This is the time period in the comics when uh, when Bucky is uh, Captain America, and and Steve Rogers uh, is sort of like the the mastermind of all the various Avengers teams and kind of picks who's on what team and everything. And he puts together a special sort of uh, black ops squad that he that are the Secret Avengers. So you have. Uh, you have him, you have uh, Black Widow, War Machine, Ant-Man, Valkyrie, uh, and Moon Knight. Um, and there's a couple of really cool storylines. The first uh, actually takes place on Mars. So if you ever wanted to see Captain America on Mars, there you go. Uh, and then you have a really cool uh, Shang-Chi story, actually. Um, so uh, Brubaker's run goes about 12 issues. Um, and they're very, very, very solid. And I really enjoyed them. And then we get into like crossover territory again i think the crossover in question was like fear itself um and then after oh, that one. Uh, yeah and then after that warren ellis actually comes in and takes over secret avengers and there's something really icky about ellis so I've, oh there's I've a lot of, not, of things <laughs> yeah yeah you're not joking so so i've kind of like held off on going further into the series for now i'm not really quite sure if i'm willing to go there but brew baker's first 12 issues are really really solid uh there's also a flashback issue in there that is actually drawn by by david aja which is just so cool to see his style again and how how he you know lays out a page and everything um after reading you know his his hawkeye uh so so that that issue was really a highlight but the whole series just is really really good i just i really like brubaker and he had a very lengthy run on on captain america so he really you know gets the Steve Rogers character. So Secret Avengers really, really clicked for me. Uh, and, I, and I highly recommend it. I will also say, though, this, because I think it needs to be said, my time going through some of these series on Marvel Unlimited is just a stark reminder of how absolutely awful it was for a really long time to read a Marvel book. Because invariably, everything that's going on in the series is going to be sidelined for three months, and you get like three tie-in issues to some crossover that you have absolutely no interest in in reading because those tie-in issues are absolutely like completely off the beaten path. And it's, you know, I get the, and the need for crossovers in the grand scheme of things in the, in the industry, but man, it's just, there's nothing worse when right in the middle of a storyline, everything gets sidetracked for like three months. Mm -hmm. That's just the worst in a comic book series. And I've, I've actually started like, skipping over the tie-in yep. issues very 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 consciously because i just want to get back to the, the meat and potatoes of the actual series um but yeah you know even that could have not soured me these 12 issues of secret adventures were just a blast and out of the series that i've been reading so far of that era of avengers i have to say brubaker secret adventures is so far the best by landslide chris well, I'm excited to check this one out because I love like the Black Ops kind of covert operations, Bond-esque espionage type stuff. I'm, I'm really enjoying what they're doing with that, with um, 
the new Black Panther volume. Um, so I'm definitely going to have to check this one out. And and I think this, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this serves as a lot of inspiration for Steve Rogers in Infinity War, the Nomad uh, moniker. But um, So I'm super excited to check this one out. And if you're bobbing and weaving between series, I can't wait for you to get to Hickman's Avengers and Fantastic Four. I Eventually, man, I actually backed up because I only got uh, kind of a part of it. Um, I'm actually backed up and I'm reading all of Brubaker's Captain America mm. right now. I never got to read the whole run through. Right. Um, and, and this kind of, you know, whet my appetite to get more of his Steve Rogers. So I'm, I'm like 10 issues into his run on, on Captain America right now. And, you know, that, that sucker still holds up tremendously. It's really good too. I'm also just excited that you, um, bit the bullet on marvel unlimited because it's far and away like the easiest way to just binge a whole lot of stuff and i like the way i like the layout of the app um functionality can be uh, a little iffy sometimes but i i like what since especially since they've retooled it and relaunched it's gotten a lot better but just in sheer amount of reading volume i really enjoy it i really really want to get like the dc version of this uh as a companion piece so i can you know, jump back and forth between DC and Marvel a little bit. I've been very Marvel centric lately. Not not a bad thing because I've missed out on a lot, um, and I'm enjoying what I'm reading so far. Um, but still, I'd I'd like to be able to, you know, jump back into some Superman occasionally too. Yeah, for sure. All right, folks. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you like what you heard, give us a rating, a review subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We are available wherever podcasts can be found. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, you name it, we are there, including our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com. And as always, hit us up on social media at Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword or individually that nerd Dave, that nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.